0: Hi, I'm Alan Alexandroff, and I'm one of the senior editors of the journal Global Summitry. It's my pleasure today uh, to uh, welcome to the studio Professor John Mearsheimer, uh, John actually a colleague of mine back in the very early days at Cornell, and uh, John has now taught international relations for many years at the University of Chicago. He is one of the leading lights in the international relations field in both describing and elaborating on the approach in international relations known as realism. John has been a persistent critic of US foreign, of the U.S. foreign policy elites, their creation and the evolution of the liberal international order. All of this has been examined in significant detail in his most recent works, which include the um, uh, book uh, published in 2018, The Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Realities, and more recently his 2019 article in International Security uh, titled Bound to Fail, the rise and fall of the liberal international order. I was quite eager to get John into the studio so that we could talk about his most recent works and in particular, I wanted to explore with him his views of the foreign policy of Donald Trump. So let's enter the studio and have the opportunity to talk with uh, John. Well, it's a pleasure then to uh, welcome uh, John Mearsheimer uh, to our podcast on American foreign policy in the age of Trump. John, are you there?
1: I'm there and glad to be here, Alan.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. Okay. Um, Let me start uh, by uh, examining, in part, your article. Uh, You start with a strong reflection on the current state of the liberal order in the piece that you just recently released in International Security. Uh, entitled, uh, Bound to Fail, the Rise and Fall of the Liberal International Order. And you say in particular, by 2019, it was clear that the Liberal International Order was in deep trouble. The tectonic plates that underpin it are shifting, and little can be done to repair it. So I guess the question is, why is there so little that uh, current leadership can do to repair the Liberal International Order?
1: Well, my argument is that there are two fundamental problems uh, associated with the liberal international order, which I believe has been in existence since the end of the Cold War in 1989. And the first of those problems is that the order contained the seeds of its own destruction. Without going into any detail at this point, my argument is that there were a series of policies that underpinned the development of this liberal international order that we're guaranteed to fail or to backfire and to ultimately bring it down mm-hmm. so that's my first argument
0: well i guess you know look i mean I, let's keep liberal with international your
1: national order
0: right let's let's keep with that argument but but the fact is of course we have somebody currently and the current administration is not one i i presume that you view as being part of the uh, liberal international order, right?
1: No, in, in fact, President Trump, when he was campaigning, campaigning in 2016, explicitly ran against the liberal international order. He was critical of its principal three dimensions, okay. and his argument was that the liberal international order had failed, right. and he won the election.
0: Okay, um, but but then going back to the order, which clearly he's not per se a part of, why wouldn't his removal uh, and uh, the re- return of a more, in quotes, uh, liberal figure or uh, uh, lead us to believe that we can get back to some form of the order?
1: Well, for two reasons. One, okay. it's broken.
0: The order is broken. It okay. didn't work.
1: Again, this is why Trump got elected. You're assuming that this was an order that was working quite smoothly until President Trump came along. Mm -hmm. And now we just have to get rid of him and go back to the old way of doing business. This is not what happened. The liberal international order failed us. Trump took advantage of that, and he's in the White House. That's point one. Point two is, with the rise of China and the resurrection (laughs) of Russian power, We are now moving from a unipolar world into a multipolar world. Mm -hmm. And in a multipolar world, especially with the U.S.-China competition, it's impossible to have a liberal international order.
0: And why do you uh, take that position? I mean, you you suggest, first of all, that the liberal international order didn't even exist. Uh, There was what you would describe as a bounded order that is... Uh, America leading the West and the Soviets leading whatever they had there, their empire, uh, but that wasn't a liberal international order, at least in the West, Western side, and that only with the demise of the Soviet Union could you have a liberal international order. That seems quite contrary to a lot of thinking in the international relations community.
1: It is contrary to the way many people think about it, but I believe that those people are wrong and I'm right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair enough. And why are you and why are you right and they're wrong? Because I
1: think your description of the orders that existed mm-hmm. between 1945 and 1989, that's mm-hmm. the Cold War, right. are accurate. You said that what we had in the West was a bounded order that was dominated by the United States Mm -hmm. and included institutions like NATO and the EU, the IMF, the World Bank, GATT, and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of what we used to call the Iron Curtain, there was a Soviet-led order that included institutions like Comic-Con, Comintern, the Warsaw Pact, and so forth and so on. So you had these two bounded orders that engaged in security competition right, right. from 1945 to 1989. This is not to deny that the Western order didn't also generate huge amounts of prosperity. Right, and, right. But the point is that these two orders were part of a security competition between the United States and its allies on one hand and the Soviet Union and its allies on the other hand. It was not an international order and it was basically in both cases a realist order, not a liberal order. What happened was that the Cold War came to an end. The Soviet Union disappeared and the United States was by far the most powerful state in the world and it had this Western order that it could take and expand across the globe and turn into an international order, indeed turn into a liberal international order, which is exactly what we set out to do, and we were successful
0: at creating it. I guess the question I have for you, though, is, I mean, you're focused not unreasonably on the Atlantic order, that is, the order that the United States built after 1946-47, But, you know, there clearly was additional elements to it, not least of which uh, Japan, uh, Korea, uh, you know, those uh, additional partners and allies. So it's not clear to me still why this somehow isn't an international order, notwithstanding it, you know, it didn't obviously include the Soviet Union and uh, its allies in Eastern Europe.
1: Well, it didn't include the Soviet Union and China for most of the Cold War. And those are two huge countries. But the thing you want to remember, Alan, is that when the Cold War ended, what we wanted to do was expand this order, Mm -hmm. take it and make it applicable to the entire globe. Mm -hmm. And our two principal missions were to one, integrate the Russians and two, integrate the Chinese into that order. And the idea is it would be an American-dominated order, a liberal international order, but it would also include the Russians, the Chinese, and hopefully virtually every country on the planet, Mm. thus being truly international. Okay.
0: So, notwithstanding that there are a variety of actors in this, what you've described as a bounded order, a bounded order is not an international order as you conceive of it. Yes, I
1: I distinguish clearly between bounded orders and international orders. And I think the Western order in the Cold War, to be clear, was a bounded order. And that was expanded into an international order when the Cold War ended.
0: And you don't think, I mean, that the United States pressed for kind of liberalization, even in this bounded order, which would make it closer to a liberal order?
1: Well, the truth is that there are some policies that the United States pursued mm-hmm. for realist reasons okay. that it would have pursued if it were trying to spread a liberal order. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example. Okay. Uh, open markets. Uh, during the Cold War, the United States was very interested in facilitating free trade and open markets among the various countries in that Western order. Mm -hmm. I believe that was done in large part for security reasons. The name of the game was to make those Western countries very powerful vis-a-vis the Soviet Union and its allies. We had a security interest in having economic prosperity, because prosperity is related to security in very important ways. Mm-hmm. But this is not to deny for one second, if you were crafting a, a liberal order, you would pursue those same policies. So there is overlap
0: there. Right. Okay, well, and let me, let me turn to obviously the expansion because you said, you know, uh, clearly there were key elements, key a- actors outside the bounded order. Russia, you identified, and obviously its allies, and more particularly China. So let me, let me move uh, for a moment to uh, China because y- you say that, you know, in effect, Um, the American policymaking after the end of the Cold War was actually helping to undermine uh, the liberal order, and in particular, you point to, uh, you know, the efforts to accelerate uh, Chinese growth, right? Uh, China had grown rapidly, as you say, into an economic powerhouse with significant military capability. Uh, in, in effect, the United States, in its efforts to create this liberal order, I suspect you're saying, helped uh, therefore to uh, China to become a great power and undermine the actual order. Okay, so uh, the question then becomes: uh, If you were an American foreign policy maker, both in terms of economic policy making, security policy making, what would you have done vis-a-vis China following the end of the Cold War?
1: Alan, let me just say a few words about what I think uh, American policy was vis-a-vis. This is a very important issue. Then I'll answer your question and tell you. It was very clear by the mid-1990s that China was going to continue its impressive economic growth that it had started in the early 1980s. And, Mm -hmm. And the question is, how do you think about this? Now, the... Clinton administration and then the Bush administration and the Obama administration decided that the best way to deal with China was to engage China. Right. The idea was to get it deeply integrated into the open international economy, get it into institutions like the WTO, give it more power in the IMF, and the World Bank and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. So it would become richer. And it would become deeply embedded in these international institutions, uh, which are basically rules and it would obey the rules. And the idea to use Robert Zelik's terminology was that China would become a responsible stakeholder. Mm -hmm. Therefore it would eventually become a democracy. Once China was a democracy, it was hooked on capitalism, and it was embedded in all these international institutions, even though it was super powerful, it wouldn't matter because it was a responsible stakeholder, and we would, in effect, all live happily ever after. So that was the basic policy uh, of of sort of liberal internationalism or liberal hegemony, Uh Uh, and it failed. And it failed because China did grow by leaps and bounds economically, but it did not become a liberal democracy. And the United States and China are now at loggerheads in East Asia, which is not good for the United States because it's dealing with a much more powerful China than it otherwise would have been dealing with. So that's what we tried to do and what we ended up doing. What a good realist like me would say we should have done was gone to great lengths to slow down Chinese economic growth as much as possible and fashion a smart containment policy to make sure that China does not end up dominating Asia the way the United States dominates the Western Hemisphere. The fact is, the Chinese have a deep-seated interest in dominating Asia. I don't blame them one bit they have no interest in having the American military in their backyard any more than we have any interest in having any great power in the Western Hemisphere. So what's going to happen now that China's gotten really powerful is that it's going to move more and more to try to dominate Asia. And the United States, of course, is going to contest it. And you're going to have this intense security competition. Uh and East Asia and you're going to be having an intense security competition with an especially powerful China that you helped create
0: fair enough i mean so your kind of rule of thumb here was let's let's tr- we should have tried to constrain the progress of uh, China of the Chinese economy. I'm not quite sure how one does that, but I suppose you just don't trade with them or you limit their um, their reach. Leave aside the military side of it. Is that kind of the conception that it, you know the the effort to promote prosperity in China should have been far more restrained than it was?
1: Yes, I think that you put it very well. Okay. And, and I agree with your point that it's it, it's difficult to know exactly how you could have done this.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and presumably your concern is not that the United States doesn't have influence in Asia, but that it's just facing a more competitive, uh, uh, in quotes, adversary than it might have faced if uh, other policies had been followed.
1: My basic view, Alan, is that the principal goal of American foreign policy is to make sure that no great power Mm -hmm. dominates either Europe or Asia. Uh, For example, in the first half of the 20th century, we wanted to make sure that Imperial Germany and then Nazi Germany did not dominate Europe and that Imperial Japan did not dominate Asia. Right. and during the Cold War we went to great lengths to make sure that the Soviet Union dominated neither Europe nor Asia mm-hmm. and my view with China is that we have a vested interest in making sure that China does not become a regional hegemon in Asia, the same way we worked to prevent the Soviet Union Germany and Japan from achieving regional hegemony what you want from an American point of view mm-hmm. is to be the only regional hegemon in the world and we the united states are a regional hegemon in the western hemisphere we are the only great power in the region and we dominate the region as most canadians of course understand <laughs> But <laughs> we, fair we enough on anybody else to achieve that exalted position and From a chinese point of view as i often say when i go to beijing if i were playing their hand i'd want to dominate asia Mm i don't blame chinese for wanting to be really powerful uh, and and for wanting to uh, be a regional hegemon it makes perfect sense from their point of view Uh, you have to understand that if you pursue a policy of engagement and you help them get really wealthy you're giving them the wherewithal or the capability to maximize their chances of dominating the region
0: well let me just add one one uh, additional question because I, I you know speak as you do you to many of the China experts and some of my China expert friends simply say hey hey hold it a second uh, it may be that China has not become a uh, liberal um, state in the way in which we hope but wait a while that there, you know, we're being premature here in believing that the prosperity won't lead to a greater demands from the middle class uh, to develop a uh, a more liberal approach and there clearly are elements within the Chinese uh, uh, party state who, you know, who will quietly talk about that. You just don't think that that's realistic. Well,
1: I would make two points. One is, I think that line of argument, which is commonplace in academia, especially among China experts, as Mm -hmm. you say, reflects the belief that liberal democracy is the best political system in the world, and states will eventually move towards it. Mm -hmm. This kind of thinking is actually what propelled liberal hegemony at the end of the Cold War. The United States indeed thought it would be easy to spread democracy or liberal democracy across the world. Uh This is reflected, by the way, in Francis Fukuyama's very famous article, The End of History, because Frank basically said democracy had defeated fascism in the first half of the 20th century, communism in the second half, and the future was liberal democracies all over the planet. Mm -hmm. We, in effect, had the wind at our back. And this kind of thinking is what helped launch us on this crusade in the early uh, 1990s. But the fact is, as we now know, there are alternatives to liberal democracy and there are peoples around the world who would prefer to live in a soft authoritarian state. Uh, it's not something I fully understand, but people have different preferences here. If you go to Russia today, for example, and you use the word liberal democracy, they think of the 1990s. And, Russia at that point in time looked like the Wild West. and Their view is no thank you. We'll take Putin's soft authoritarianism every other time. So what I'm saying to you is I think that you want to be careful not to assume that that is the best political order for the Chinese, and therefore they will eventually reach that point. The second point I would make to you, and the more important point from a realist perspective, mm-hmm. is I think it matters one way or the other. Uh, Many people believe that once a state becomes a liberal democracy, it becomes a quite peaceful state, especially with regard to other liberal democracies. Uh, I doubt that very much. Mm -hmm. Uh, You look at the United States since the end of the Cold War. We've been at war for two out of every three years. We have fought seven different wars. Uh, and you really sort of say to yourself, uh, is this evidence of the peacefulness of liberal democracies uh, at work in the international system? I'm not sure about that.
0: Yeah, although, again, as you point out, I mean, the focus is on other uh, liberal democracies in particular, not yes. other states, many of which would be illiberal or autocratic. Uh, but, you know, having, having said that, I just wanted. to... Touch base first of all again with respect to China. So what should the United States policy now be in reflection uh, on um, uh, kind of flashpoints like the East China Sea, particularly with Japan, the South China Sea, particularly with uh, you know some of the peripheral states, the surrounding states like. Vietnam or the Philippines. That is, what should the United States be doing in the face of a more aggressive Chinese policy?
1: Well, I think at a general level, what we should be doing is working to create a balancing coalition to contain China. Mm. Uh, We should be going to great lengths to work with the South Koreans, the Japanese, the Filipinos, the Vietnamese, the Indians and so forth and so on to put together an alliance structure that can contain china this is going to be very difficult to do but it's important to do Mm -hmm. and by the way it's difficult to do because of the geographical dispersal of all those countries Mm -hmm. around China's periphery. So it'll be be very tricky. We should be working hard to do that. The Trump administration is actually doing a terrible job in this. (laughs) Uh, So um, what,
0: what should the United States, at least at this moment, be doing with respect to the various flashpoints there? You're saying build an alliance. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, I mean, there seems to be, you know, this rail politic activity going on. Yeah, well, the three main
1: flashpoints, maybe four if you want to include the Korean Peninsula, mm-hmm. one is the South China Sea, two is Taiwan, yes. and three is the East China Sea. Right. Uh, and with regard to Taiwan, the United States is committed at this point uh, to Taiwan's independence. Uh, and uh, – Given the reputational effects of allowing Taiwan to go under, uh, the United States will remain committed and should remain committed to the defense of Taiwan for the foreseeable future. Uh, with regard to the East China Sea, uh, mm-hmm. these islands, Japanese call them the Sinkaku, and it's right. called them the Diao Islands. They're small little clusters of rocks, actually, in the East China Sea. Mm hmm. And now effectively controls them. And China says they belong to Beijing, not to Tokyo. Uh, the United States has to back up uh, China. I mean, excuse me, has to back up Japan hey. to the hands here. Yeah. Because the Japanese don't have nuclear weapons and they're depending on us. Uh-huh. Uh, to provide our nuclear umbrella over their heads so we have to back up the japanese there uh the trickiest of all these issues is the south china sea which is a huge body of water uh uh, and uh the chinese basically believe that it is a giant chinese lake and that these are not international waters we Mm -hmm. disagree completely Mm -hmm. and i think the potential uh for uh the two sides, the Chinese and the Americans, to get into a shooting match in the South China Sea over some naval incident is not to be underestimated. But it's very clear that the United States has to stand up to the Chinese, and uh, we have to make it clear that we intend to continue to treat uh, the South China Sea uh, as an international body of water, not as a Chinese lake.
0: I see. Uh, Let's look at one other flashpoint. Uh less a focus for China but nevertheless the issue of the Korean Peninsula. How do you see Trump foreign policy at the moment and what needs to be done in order to keep uh, the Korean Peninsula relatively stable?
1: Well, I think the key issue is North Korean nuclear weapons and American policy, this is true of presidents before Donald Trump, are committed to getting North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons. And I've long believed that this is a lost cause. Mm -hmm. I don't think the North Koreans are going to give up their nuclear weapons. And I think the North Koreans would be crazy to give up their nuclear weapons. The United States is heavily into regime change. And it's countries like North Korea that are at the top of the target list. And the North Koreans understand full well that the Americans told Colonel Qaddafi in Libya that if he gave up his WMD program, which right. the nuclear program, we right. would leave him alone. He could live happily ever after. In fact, he gave up his WMD programs, and then we helped kill him. Uh, this has not been lost on the North Koreans, and, uh, and, and therefore I find it, to be honest, unimaginable that they'd give up their nuclear weapons. I see.
0: Okay, let's just focus in uh, on, on, on Trump policy, and let me, let me post to you the, the view of the so-called Trump doctrine. Uh, and here I'm referring, there are others, but here I'm referring to Michael Anton, who was um, at the NSC uh, before he left to go into academia. He wrote in the Foreign Policy uh, that, uh, again, speaking of Trump doctrine, it could be said like this, let's all put our own countries first and be candid about it and recognize that it's nothing to be ashamed of. Putting our interests first will make us all uh, more uh, safer and more prosperous. If there is a Trump doctrine, that's it. So what do you think about that? Uh, notion that Anton has and presumably it's not only applicable to the United States, it's applicable to all countries.
1: Well, I don't think it tells you very much. First of all, it it implies that uh, Hillary Clinton, for example, didn't put America's interests first, or Barack Obama or George W. Bush didn't. Mm -hmm. But finally, we have a president who's going to put America's interests first. I think this is simply wrong. I think Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, they were all American firsters. It's just that they had a different view of what American foreign policy should look like than Mm -hmm. Donald Trump. That. so you can disagree on you know how uh, to protect America's interests but to argue that you know other American leaders are not interested in taking care of the United States I think is wrong-headed I also think that the problem with that description is it's just too vague I, uh, I have a somewhat more specific description of what Trump's foreign policy is, but it can't be too specific because one can never be sure what exactly he's up to, uh, mm-hmm. because he tends to bob and weave with the best of them. Uh, but My view, uh, Alan, is that mm-hmm. uh, the principal goal is to end what I would call, and other people call, the forever wars, okay. uh, Afghanistan, okay. Iraq, Syria. He just wants to get out of those places. Uh, end those wars and not start any new ones. This is why so many people are now uh, coming to recognize that he's unlikely to start a war in Iran because it would be another one of the forever wars. So his first goal is to end the for- forever wars. I think his second goal is to contain China. Uh, I-, I think he is highly aggressive both at the economic level and the military level when it comes to dealing with China. And uh, I think it's quite clear that he's going to uh, push forward uh, economic and military policies that are going to lead rather quickly to an intense security competition uh, between the United States and China. And then the third thing that he's trying to do, and this gets back to our earlier discussion, is he's trying to wreck what's left of the liberal international order. Mm-hmm. Remember, the liberal international order was predicated on an open international economy. Uh, Tariffs are part of President Trump's playbook, and he's willing to use tariffs uh, against allies as well as against adversaries. He really likes tariffs. He's Mm -hmm. addicted. Mm -hmm. And in terms of international institutions, which are, of course, at the heart of the liberal international order, he's never seen an an international institution that he didn't loathe Uh, He hates NATO, which he said was obsolete. The EU has basically described him as an existential threat. He hates the WTO, he hates NAFTA, he hates the IMF, he hates the World Bank. He just does not like institutions. And of course he's also not into the business of spreading democracy. Right. no, he's never met an authoritarian leader or dictator that he wasn't willing to get friendly with.
0: Well, let me let me ask you about one authoritarian dictator and it relates to the people around him and your comment, which is, you know, Trump wants to end the forever wars. And yet you know, I look at his foreign policy with respect to Iran, in part run by uh, Mike Pompeo, run by John Bolton. These are not guys who want to end forever wars. So how, how do we square that up, right?
1: I think we can't. can't. I mean, I, I think you're right. Uh, you just sort of scratch your head and say, how can it be mm-hmm. that a president who campaigned on the platform that he wanted to end the forever wars and has actually taken some steps in that direction, hired uh, John Bolton, of all people, as national security advisor. John Bolton has never saw a war that he could, didn't want to fight. right. And, and and Mike Pompeo was right up there with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, these t- two, you know, extreme hawks. And uh, we're now in this paradoxical situation where we're depending on Donald Trump to rein in his advisors. Two years ago, we were depending on his advisors <laughs> to rein him <laughs> in. So we've done a flip flop here. Uh, and you say to me, how do you explain it? I'm sorry to say, Alan, I can't.
0: Okay, well, fair enough. Let me, let me just one little uh, footnote to that. Obviously, you talk about uh, hegemony in, in the, the hemisphere. Uh, what, the, therefore, should the Trump administration, because, again, you've got Bolton uh, and Pompeo, in, a, in quotes, running the show in part, at least at the uh, policy uh, uh, officials' level, with respect to Venezuela. Well, my view on Venezuela
1: is we ought to just stay far away. We ought to have a hands-off policy. Mm -hmm. In fact, what we're trying to do is use economic pressure uh, to foster regime change. And we intensely dislike the regime, mainly for ideological reasons. But I don't believe that this regime is in any way a threat to the United States. And all the punishment we're inflicting on Venezuela is hurting innocent people. I don't think the elites who we're really trying to get at are being hurt uh, in any meaningful way. And I think the United States would be best off to just leave the situation in Venezuela alone and let the Venezuelans figure out for themselves where they want to go. But
0: but, uh, I guess the question is, I mean, look, uh, you know, dominance in the Western Hemisphere, how can you talk about dominance in, in the Western Hemisphere when you have the Russians mixing it up in Venezuela, the Chinese involved in Venezuela, the Cubans in particular, involved in Venezuela. How how does that square with American dominance? Well,
1: it shows you what a foolish policy we have, because the principal reason the Russians and the Chinese have moved in Mm -hmm. is to combat us. Mm -hmm. We've gone to great lengths to pick fights with the Russians and the Chinese. The United States uh, has... Very hostile relations. Let's just talk about the Russians with Putin administration, Mm -hmm. right? And Putin is looking for ways to get back at us. Mm -hmm. And what we've done in Venezuela is create a perfect opportunity for him to get back at us, Mm -hmm. just as we did in Syria, right? Remember, he intervened in Syria. When the trouble started in Syria in 2011, the United States almost immediately got involved and we got heavily into the business of trying to throw... Uh, overthrow Assad. Then, in 2015, the Russians moved in, looking for an opportunity to give us trouble. Right? They moved into Syria and they checkmated us there, and they're doing the same thing in Venezuela. If we had kept our hands off Venezuela, the Russians wouldn't be there, and we wouldn't have this bigger problem.
0: Really? I mean, you you think if the Americans had kept uh, uh, the hands off? The Russians wouldn't see some of the advantages. I mean, clearly, both Russians and Chinese have lent significant amounts of resources to what, at best, is a maladapted administration in Venezuela. That, you know, there wouldn't be that kind of inducement on the part of both to have influence there. I believe
1: that I believe that it would have been easy for the United States to tell them to stay out and they would have stayed out in the Russian case. You do not want to underestimate the extent to which the Russians are looking for opportunities to cause us trouble. This is with regard to NATO. It's with regard to the EU, more Uh general transatlantic relationship. Uh And it all gets back to the fact that with NATO expansion and EU expansion and the color revolutions, right, which pushed Western influence right up to the borders of Russia and led to a war over Georgia in August of 2008 and led to the Ukrainian crisis, which broke out in February 2014. The Russians since then have gone to great lengths to cause us trouble Mm -hmm. so that we stop causing them trouble in their neighborhood.
0: Let me ask you. Speaking of the neighborhood, then what should American policy be then towards uh, either the Ukraine, but more generally, uh, uh, you know, the the Eastern Ukraine, uh, Crimea, etc. Where does American foreign policy need to go in dealing with Russia's aggressiveness?
1: Well, I think what has to be done here is the United States and the European allies have to say there's going to be no more NATO expansion. Okay. And in particular, there's not going to be NATO expansion into Ukraine. And the West is not going to try to make Ukraine into a bulwark, a Western bulwark on Russia's borders. And what we want to do is go back to the status quo ante. Now you're saying to yourself, what exactly is the status quo ante? If you think about it, The years between 1992 and when the crisis broke out in 2014. During those years, there was no problem with Ukraine. The Russians and the Ukrainians did not have the problem then that they have now. That was all before the crisis. We want to go back to the situation that existed between Ukraine and Russia and the West in, let's say the year 2000 or the year 1998. And what we have to do to get there is, we have to make it very clear to the Ukrainians they cannot become Western bulwarks on Russia's border, and we have to make it clear to Putin and his lieutenants that we have no intention of doing. That. And at the same time, we expect the Russians to basically leave Ukraine alone, because we're going to leave Ukraine alone. And again, we're going back to the status quo. Right,
0: but the. But the proximate cause of the problem, and that includes the color revolution, really was a decision by the Ukrainian, uh, at least parts of the Ukrainian government, to establish a stronger economic relationship with the European Union. And clearly the Russians were not happy with that, and indeed their, for lack of a better term, let's call it the Ukrainian puppet there, uh, ultimately decided that he was going to favor a Russian uh, economic relationship and not a European Union relationship, leaving aside the, the whole NATO issue. So um, I don't quite see how we, you know, how your solution deals with that issue, which is the economic efforts uh, to end corruption, build the Ukrainian economy. Well,
1: you you're assuming, right, that this is largely an economic problem. And it's not an economic problem or an economic issue. It's a security issue. The fact is that from a Russian point of view, moving NATO, Mm -hmm. which is deeply linked to the EU, up to Russia's border and making Ukraine a Western bulwark is just unacceptable.
0: So so we can't have a European Union linkage for the Ukrainians is that what you're saying
1: you can have a European Union linkage if you don't have NATO expansion Mm -hmm. do you see what I'm saying the problem was it was not just the EU it was NATO as well and if you look at the proposal that was on the table in 2013 Mm -hmm. involving Ukraine becoming linked to the EU, it had all sorts of military rhetoric in the key document.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: right? And the Russians saw EU, the EU expansion into Ukraine as a stalking horse for NATO expansion. So, I'm not saying you can't have EU expansion into Ukraine. that You can't have close economic relations between the West or the EU and Ukraine. Right. You can't. Okay. But you can't have that in conjunction with NATO expansion. And furthermore, when you do have EU expansion, it has to be done in, you know, cooperation with the Russians. I mean, why? The Rus-
0: why? I mean, the EU doesn't ask Russia for its uh, acceptance, does it? When it comes to EU activity.
1: Well, they have no choice. They Otherwise, have no choice. you have a crisis. The, the Russians are a great power, okay. and russians will wreck ukraine Mm -hmm. right you know there's this whole issue i've run into it a number of times when i've talked on this issue where people say to me don't the ukrainians have a right to choose their own foreign policy in other words don't the ukrainians have the right as a sovereign state to become part of nato or part of the west and Of course, you would expect me to say, yes, they have that right, but they don't have that right anymore. Cuba had the right to invite the Soviets to put missiles on Cuban territory in 1962.
0: So you see the equivalence there?
1: Yes. Do you think that in, let's assume that in 20 years, Canada decides (laughs) that it's going to invite China to station military forces in Toronto, Mm. okay? Let's Mm -hmm. assume that happens. Do you think the United States is going to say Canada has the sovereign right to do that? I don't think so. I think the United States will make it very clear to Canada that that is unequivocally accept- unacceptable.
0: Mm-hmm. And so just to, to finish this off, I, I, what's your view then with respect to the fact that Estonia, because we're moving you know into the East, that Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, of course, are part of the EU, but also part of NATO. I mean, are you saying that that has to change?
1: No, that is an accomplished fact. Okay. And uh, okay. It, it's actually, in my opinion, something of a miracle that that happened. <laughs> there, there were two waves, two big waves of NATO expansion, Alan. Yeah. The first is in 1999, which brought in... Uh, Poland, the Czech Republic and Hungary. Right. And then the second big tranche was in 2004. And in that second big tranche, which brought in countries like Slovakia, Slovenia, Romania and the Baltic states, right. Latvia, Lithuania Estonia, and Estonia, right? So those are the three states that also border Russia. Yes. We got away with it. <laughs> right? But it's when in 2008 we said that Georgia and Ukraine were going to become part of NATO, that we stepped too far. That was a bridge too far. And that, of course, is why we got a war over Georgia in August 2008. And then the war broke out in eastern Ukraine in 2014, right? Because the Russians had had enough. And Ukraine is, from the point of view of strategic real estate, Ukraine is more important than the three Baltic states, Mm -hmm. the Russians put their foot down. And what's happening here to be very clear is that the Russians are wrecking Ukraine Mm -hmm. and they're wrecking Ukraine so that it can't become part of the West. So as I often say to Ukrainian audiences, this whole idea of you becoming a part of the west is a remarkably foolish idea because all it's going to do is lead to the destruction of ukraine it would make much more sense from a ukrainian point of view to put an end to this idea that you're going to become part of nato and part of the eu and so forth and so on because it's just giving the russians a super powerful incentive to wreck your country
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's have one last uh, question. I mean, in reading your uh, piece, you kind of end with uh, a view that there could be three different types of realist orders, at least in the, let's say, the short to medium term, a kind of thin order, which you not unreasonably, I think, uh, quickly reject as not likely. And then you talk about two... Thick bounded orders—one led by China, the other, the United States—and you draw the comparison that um, that this uh, that these two potential bounded orders, uh, China dominant presumably in Asia, and the United States dominant in in basically the West, and uh, that it has appearances like and it resembles according to to your view, something like the period before the outbreak of war, the First World War, and you know, in effect saying, oh, it's kind of like uh, the Triple Alliance and the Triple Entente. But in looking at that, uh, you know, the reality is, of course, that the interdependence, the tight interdependence between uh, China and the United States you know, simply outmatches anything we can see in the period leading up to the First World War. So how does one match that up when we have such tight interdependence, economic interdependence between China and the United States?
1: Well, I'd make two points. Uh, One is a lot of people actually believe that the principal reason that the United States and China will never fight each other mm-hmm. is because of all of the economic interdependence. Right. So this in a way supports your point that there is a great deal of economic interdependence. And by the way, not only between the United States and China, but also between China and its neighbors. Absolutely. Countries like Japan. Japan. Right. Yep, so, exactly. right. So so the argument is that you, you you can't have a war because the economic consequences would be disastrous for everyone. But what I would say to you Mm -hmm. is that if you look at what the Trump administration is doing now, and what I think is likely to happen over time, Mm -hmm. is there's going to be a significant reduction in that economic independence. And what you're seeing now is much more economic competition, much more hostility at the economic level. The United States, in a very important way, sees itself at war with the Chinese on the economic front. Uh, This whole concept of China 2025, where the Chinese advertised that they were going to dominate a lot of these sort of cutting edge technologies at the expense of the United States. Mm -hmm. That was a major mistake on the part of the Chinese because it really rankled the Americans and it scared the Americans. The fact is there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley who are really afraid of the Chinese because they think they're going to be run out of business by China. So those people, people in the economic world, business world, are as interested in competing with China as the Pentagon is. So we're going to have an intense security competition. And I think the end result, Alan, is that that economic interdependence, which you described, Uh -uh. is quite significantly which is not to deny that there still will be a significant amount of economic intercourse between not only China and the United States, but China and its neighbors.
0: So, I mean, are you suggesting then that the current Trump policy um, is really about not just improving the trade relationship to get it to be more reciprocal because of the perceived and actual uh, unevenness of the relationship, but it's really something aimed more at a significant effort to decouple uh, the relationship of, uh, let's say, China and the United States. I'd put it in slightly
1: different terms. Okay. I, I think the aim is to beat the Chinese.
0: Sure. That, that that's the
1: aim it, it, decoupling is part of that right that that's that that's going to attend this policy but the fact is that what we're out to do is make sure that 2025 does not succeed and that we dominate the sort of cutting-edge technologies in the year 2025 and there are two reasons for this one is it has a lot to do with how much wealth your country has sure. and as you know Countries want to be really powerful, and that means you want to be really wealthy. That means you want to be out on the cutting edge of the leading technologies, right? And at the same time, these technologies have huge importance for military capabilities, right? Uh, So you want to really have the best technology available so that you can integrate it into your military systems and uh, be the dominant force there as well.
0: So uh, I I presume then, but that focus on the, before you get to the national security aspect of it, but it really relies on, you know, the various centers of American economic activity, technological and innov- innovation and achieving. I mean, seems to me it has less to do with China than it does to do with the United States. That is, the United States and the bright people that are pressing forward on these various technologies. I mean, China can assert what it wants with respect to the, 2025, but that doesn't necessarily tell us anything about the development of innovation, machine learning, AI uh, in the West. That's we don't, right. We don't rely on the Chinese.
1: It's not so much that we rely on the Chinese. The point is that power is relative. Okay. And the United States can do very well for itself, but if China does even better, that's not good. What you want to do is make sure that you do much better than the Chinese when it comes to developing things like uh, 5G networks and AI and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. You you want to be the dominant economy. (laughs) The United States basically wants to maintain the position that it's had since at least the end of World War II. We have the dominant economy on the planet. And just to go back to what we were talking about before with regard to engagement. Yep. The idea was that if China got technologically sophisticated and grew by leaps and bounds economically, that would not be a bad thing. Right. China would ultimately be pacified. Trump is taking exactly the opposite view, that you just don't want China to grow, right? You want to do everything you can to slow it down and at the same time accelerate American growth. Because what we want to do is we want to remain the dominant uh, developer of sophisticated technologies in the world.
0: So then, John, it's kind of in peace. Lifting all boats is not what we're about in terms of economic activity.
1: We're not about lifting all boats when there is a country out there that is a potential peer competitor. Mm-hmm. When you're dealing with a weak China, You know, starting in the 1980s and even in the 1990s for a while, you know, you can talk about lifting all boats. And we did that. We lifted the Chinese boat, we lifted the Indian boat. Mm -hmm. uh, That that you can do when you're the unipole and uh, it doesn't look like anybody's in a position to challenge you. But the problem that you run into is when you deal with a country, whether it's Imperial Germany, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, China. Imperial Japan—that's mm-hmm. a lot of people and a lot of human capital—and it looks like they may have the ability to compete with you mm-hmm. economically uh, or technologically. You go to great lengths to make sure that you win that competition, and that's what I think is going on with Trump.
0: But I mean, you know, his his notion—that uh, is Trump's notion—is okay. You slap tariffs on, and and you. Limit uh, the interaction, let's say, with the technology. But surely uh, there is an alternative view which says, no, you don't focus on that. You focus on, you know, building uh, the uh, platform uh, that creates the technologies and the innovation in the United States. That has very little to do with China, doesn't it?
1: Yes, that's correct. But the point is, those two things are not mutually exclusive.
0: I see. Okay.
1: I I think that the Trump administration would agree with your point, but say at the same time, what we have to do is work to slow down Chinese economic growth. I see. So so what we're trying to do here is slow down Chinese economic growth and accelerate American economic growth.
0: And, And somehow tariffs do that?
1: Well, that's their theory. Yeah. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. I mean, as you know, there are a number of very smart people who think this is either not going to work or it's going to backfire. Right. Uh, I find it very hard to figure out for myself where this all leads. <laughs> I mean, I read lots of articles on it, but sure. it's not terribly clear what's the bottom line. Is.
0: <laughs> well, maybe we'll just have to wait a while and then we'll come back to revisit this. But, uh, John, I want to thank you for taking the time. Uh, to explore with us uh, Trump foreign policy and more generally uh, foreign policy in the age of, uh, in the age of Trump uh, and I really appreciate it and thank you for your time You're welcome, it's my pleasure Alan Okay <laughs> You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.